in the words of some guy from some radio show, strap it on. I'm going to take you for a ride. Welcome to the Device of Albums podcast, where I blew through the show's entire budget recording that theme song and need to beg for money. I'm being facetious, but the show is now on Patreon, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. Here on the Device of Albums podcast, we look at albums by established bands that divided their fanbase or were otherwise controversial. I'm your host, MTI, a typical 35-year-old from the U.S. whose pronouns are he, him. And on today's episode of the Device of Albums podcast, we're looking at an album by a band who have been around forever and basically done it all in the world of music. We're going to take a look at an album by Fleetwood Mac. Whether you love them or hate them, you can't deny that Fleetwood Mac have had one of the longest, most successful, and most fascinating careers in music history, even by the standards of good old rock and roll. I could do an entire podcast just on their history and some of the wild things they've been through, and still leave out a lot of fascinating, scandalous stuff. For a brief bit of context, the band formed in 1967, are still going strong, and one of the members of what most people would call their classic lineup recently settled a lawsuit with the rest of the band as I record this in December of 2018. For the purposes of this podcast, though, we will pick up the Fleetwood Mac tale in 1975, after eight years, nine studio albums, the last several of which had each sold a couple hundred thousand copies in the US, and a bunch of lineup changes. At this point, the lineup of the band consisted of drummer Mick Fleetwood, the Fleetwood in Fleetwood Mac, and two husband-wife pairs, bassist John McVie, the Mac in Fleetwood Mac, and his wife, keyboardist-vocalist Christine McVie, and guitarist-vocalist Lindsey Buckingham and his wife, vocalist Stevie Nicks. This is generally regarded as Fleetwood Mac's classic lineup for reasons that'll be obvious shortly. In 1975, Mick Fleetwood knew that the band had a quality album on their hands and went to their record label, Warner Brothers subsidiary Reprise Records, with an ultimatum. Basically, either give us your full support or drop us. Luckily, Reprise shared Fleetwood's enthusiasm and happily threw all their resources behind supporting the album. And it worked. After a bit of a slow start, the album, simply called Fleetwood Mac, sold over 5 million copies in the span of a year or so, becoming the second biggest selling album of 1976 in the US behind only Frampton Comes Alive. And according to the RIAA, the album was certified seven times platinum in September of 2018. By the way, this 1975 album was actually Fleetwood Mac's second self-titled album, their 1968 debut being their first. For simplicity's sake, unless I specify otherwise, I'm talking about the 1975 album when I mention the self-titled album going forward. In any event, oh man, then everything went crazy in Fleetwood Mac. John and Christine McVie got a divorce. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks also got a divorce. Mick Fleetwood looked at his bandmates and said, Oh, crud, all the cool kids are doing it, let me get in on this action, and he got a divorce from his spouse. Drugs were flying everywhere, and oh yeah, these five people needed to record a follow-up to an incredibly successful album at a time when they would probably rather be anywhere else than in a room with one another. As a result, a lot of the lyrics on that follow-up are just the band taking veiled and not-so-veiled shots at one another. There was no way any of it should have worked out. But, immense pressure is how diamonds get made, or in this case, diamond albums. That follow-up album, now released on Warner Brothers Records proper since Reprise had closed up shop and its artists got integrated into Warner Brothers, was called Rumors, 
and it's one of the biggest albums in history, going 20 times platinum in the US. Yes, you heard that right, 20. In other words, rumors went diamond twice. Leaving aside compilations such as Greatest Hits albums, live albums, and the like, the total number of albums that have done that is 8. The company Rumors is in includes albums like Thriller, Led Zeppelin's fourth album, Pink Floyd's The Wall, and Back in Black by ACDC. That is some pretty legendary company to be in. Being from the US, I have to consciously try and stay out of the United States equals the world trap, but what I will say is that from about 1976, when the self-titled album started blowing up, to 1979 or so, Fleetwood Mac had as legitimate a claim as any band to being the biggest band in the US. Rumors outdid the self-titled album's 1976 performance, becoming the biggest-selling album of 1977 in the US, and just for good measure remained the third biggest-selling album of 1978, behind only the soundtracks for Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Creating two mega-successful albums, one right after the other, will buy you some creative freedom from even the biggest mega-conglomerate record label. And so it brought Fleetwood Mac creative freedom. And with that creative freedom, Lindsey Buckingham, who along with his now ex-wife Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie was one of the three songwriters in the band, was sure of one thing and one thing only. He absolutely did not want to make Rumors Part 2. Or, as it happened, Rumors Parts 2 and 3. Yes, their follow-up to Rumors was going to be that dreaded hallmark of pop rock excess, the double album. Now, this is an audio podcast, so you don't see me putting double album in air quotes here, but I definitely did for reasons we'll come back to. And look, I don't intend on turning what is at heart an album review podcast into a giant continuity fest with characters and storylines and whatnot, but yes, you're probably getting a sense of deja vu right now if you've listened to past episodes. Regardless, over two and a half years after Rumors, the follow-up and the subject of today's podcast, Tusk, was released. Did Fleetwood Mac create their own physical graffiti, or did they craft something closer to metal machine music? There's a lot to get through here, so let's get started. So, first things first, I listed three different people as vocalists when running down the lineup, and the interesting thing is that none of them are a true lead vocalist in a traditional sense. Whether coincidentally or not, those three vocalists are also the three songwriters in the band, and so the rule tends to be that the person who wrote a song also sings the lead vocal on it. There are occasional exceptions, but none on this album. And I bring this up to point out a change in formula for the start of Tusk. The previous two albums both opened with Lindsey Buckingham songs, but here on Tusk we get a Christine McVie song, which sounds like this. So, I like this song, which is called Over and Over. It's a bit more overtly country than I would have expected, probably due to that slide guitar way up in the mix, but I'd say it falls broadly into the Fleetwood Mac sound. If I had to pick one genre to describe post-1974 Fleetwood Mac, I would go with soft rock, and I think this slots nicely into that genre. That is not the case for the second song, in the first Lindsey Buckingham composition, which is called The Ledge. Thank you. 
If you follow me on Twitter, you may have noticed a tweet where I said something like, I'm five minutes into this album, and what am I listening to, and I love it. This is the song I was referring to. One narrative that has sprung up around this album was post-punk's influence on Lindsey Buckingham. If you don't know what post-punk is, it's okay, the term confused me too. But essentially, it's taking the do-it-yourself sensibilities of punk music and combining it with experimentation in various other forms and genres instead of just doing the rock music thing, whatever that may entail. And I hear a little bit of that in here, and in some of the other songs on this album. But what this actually reminds me of tempo-wise and guitar line-wise is the song You're the One That I Want from Grease, which, I mean, sure. Grease was big around this time, see second biggest album of 1978, so it makes sense that it would influence Fleetwood Mac. Uh, there's also a bit of a country hoedown kind of feel to this, which is something else we'll come back to later on. There's another part of this that I want to highlight. Take a listen to the vocals here in this specific part of the song. So did you hear that? There's a ton of reverb and other effects on the vocals, and then suddenly there just isn't. This is very much a band with a ton of resources and time just kind of playing around in the studio and seeing what happens. You can hear a bit more of the post-punk influence early in this song, another Lindsay Buckingham track called Save Me a Place. That is quite a tempo fluctuation, accented by the sparse instrumentation. It noticeably speeds up, and I'm not sure if it's a tape issue, an intentional effect, or just the band being so high on their massive success that they just didn't care. Any of those is plausible. It isn't until track 5 out of 20 that we get our first Stevie Nicks song of the album. This is called Sarah, and it's the longest song on the album at about 6.5 minutes. In keeping with the theme of our last album sold a bajillion copies so we can do whatever we want on this one, it was also one of the album's singles, though to be fair, the single version is about two minutes shorter. And it's actually the single version that was on the initial CD release. You see, this is a double album, you may remember I air-quoted that term earlier, and 20 songs is a lot. But the album lengthwise is about 74 and a half minutes, which is actually rather short for a double album. In fact, had the album come out in 1999 instead of 1979, it would have fit onto one CD with no editing necessary. The shortening of Sarah was to fit the album onto one CD when a CD's maximum capacity was only about 74 minutes rather than 80. I've already covered one single CD album that's longer than Tusk, and I can think of one or two others off the top of my head that are also longer than this, despite not being double albums in part because the record as a format died off in the 1990s before making a comeback in more recent times. In any event, here's an excerpt from Sarah. It's a little strange to say that Stevie Nicks has the most typical songs on this album, given her public image, especially that in the 1970s, although she's mellowed out quite a bit more recently. But I think it's true in the case of this album. 
This song has a lot of the same vibe as another Nick's penned song named after a woman, Rhiannon, from the self-titled album. Here's another Stevie Nicks song. It's called Sisters of the Moon. My first thought is, of course Stevie Nicks writes the song called Sisters of the Moon. But my second thought is that I like this song, especially the guitar line and the ending parts, which are a little heavier than I'm used to from the Fleetwood Mac that I have listened to, which admittedly is basically the self-titled album, Rumors, Tusk, some of their 80s singles, and one or two listens to a pre-1975 Greatest Hits compilation years and years back. Whereas the Stevie Nicks songs on Tusk are pretty, for lack of a better description, safe Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie's songs are a little more out there in that they more overtly incorporate other genres. I already discussed over and over, and here's a jazz fusion-y kind of track from McVie called Brown Eyes. Really though, as much as McVie and Nick's are very capable songwriters, in particular Nick's Gold Dust Woman, which closes out rumors, is probably my favorite Fleetwood Mac song, and one of my favorite album closers, period, they aren't the ones driving this bus, and it's not their songs that give Tusk its reputation. Now one of the ironies of Tusk, as noted in the liner notes to the remastered edition that came out a few years ago, is that it actually is possible to, from what's presented here, construct a single album that is, if not Rumors 2, at least a pretty logical follow-up to Rumors. I think this is especially true if you focus on the McVie and Nick songs in performing that exercise. No, Tusk gets its reputation from one Lindsey Buckingham and his songs. Here are just a few highlights. This one is called That's Enough For Me, and when I combine this with The Ledge, I get the impression that Buckingham just wanted to go to an old-fashioned hoot-nanny hoedown. Yeah! Every time they see come, it's the same old One of the interesting aspects of this song, and a lot of the Buckingham tracks, is how much engineering is on it, especially on his voice. I mean, you can tell it's Buckingham singing the song, although it's mainly by process of elimination, in that it sounds even less like one of the ladies than it does Buckingham. It sounds here like he's trying really hard to make his voice not sound like his voice. That's a fascinating thing about this album as a whole, really. I mentioned the post-punk DIY aesthetic that was big around this time, and Tusk is that aesthetic as applied by a band that had practically infinite resources to burn, and a practically infinite determination to burn through them. The band actually offered to buy a music studio from Warner Brothers, and when the label refused, they just took the royalties they got from Rumors and built their own studio. Once they were there, the band, Buckingham in particular, would try things like recording vocals by singing into microphones on the floor while in a push-up position, 
or going, hey, thanks for spending all that time dialing up the perfect sound on the mixing board. Now turn every knob 180 degrees and let's see what happens. You can hear some of the more interesting results of this experimentation here at the start of What Makes You Think You're the One. That drum sound is like the 1979 version of the infamous St. Anger snare. I feel like Torben Ulrich would tell Buckingham to delete that. Here, on That's All for Everyone, we hear the band playing with vocal reverb and panning, and we also hear something unusual for Fleetwood Mac. Now, vocal harmonies are a trademark of the band. Rhiannon and Goldust Woman, which I've mentioned already, are two examples, and there's also Go Your Own Way and Dreams, both off of Rumors to name a couple more examples, but they don't typically do this kind of point-counterpoint vocal line thing that they've got going on here. And on I Know I'm Not Wrong, we have this uncanny valley kind of synth sound near the end of the song. I can't even tell what they were going for there. Is that supposed to be a violin? An accordion? A hurdy-gurdy? Some unholy love child amalgamation of the three? I don't know. On one of those VH1 I Love the 70s retrospectives, someone once talked about how synthesizer makers would put in some presets and write the manuals based on what they thought musicians wanted, and meanwhile the musicians would just throw away the manual and start tinkering around with whatever on the synthesizers. And I can't help but think that's what Fleetwood Mac did here. But everything we've talked about up to this point is really just a warm-up. It's time for this album's main event. It's time to talk the title track, Tusk. According to Mick Fleetwood, some of this percussion is him smacking a lamb chop with a spatula. And that's not the weirdest thing about this song. Oh, it's not even close. What's that? You think the song could use a drum solo? And that that drum solo should be backed with some creepy laughter and other weird vocalization? Okay, no problem. Oh, you think this song could use a few more musicians on it? Like, say, the entirety of the Spirit of Troy, aka the University of Southern California Marching Band? Don't worry, Fleetwood Mac, have you covered? Yeah, 
I love everything about this song. The drum solo, the marching band, the complete disregard for pop song structure, and the fact that this was a single. Not only that, this was the lead single for the album. Yes, this was the first thing Fleetwood Mac put out as the follow-up to maybe the most successful soft rock album ever. And even better, it was a hit! It stayed in the top 10 in the US for three weeks, also hit the top 10 in the UK, and made it to the top 5 in Canada and Australia. That blows my mind. The 70s, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Tusk the Song is the penultimate track on Tusk the Album, and Tusk the Album, frankly, kind of limps to the finish with Christine McVie's Never Forget. Now, Never Forget is not a bad song by any means, but frankly, after the madcap insanity that was Tusk, basically anything following it was going to be underwhelming. So how well did Tusk the album fare in the market? I'll indirectly answer your question with a question. Quick, what's the best-selling game in the history of the Atari 2600? The answer? It's Pac-Man. Now, if you have a passing knowledge of US video game history, you're no doubt saying, wait, huh? But I've read about Atari 2600 Pac-Man. It's a giant pile of garbage. In fact, it was one of the contributors to the great video game crash of 1983. As someone who has played Atari 2600 Pac-Man, I will assure you, yes, all of that is true. But it also sold close to 8 million copies, which was nearly double the second-place game on the Atari 2600 Pitfall, which sold around 4 million copies. So what was the problem? Well, besides the fact that the game was a giant pile of garbage, Atari expected the game to sell 12 million copies, and made enough copies of it to be prepared for that. So in that sense, Atari 2600 Pac-Man was a giant failure. Tusk suffered from a similar issue as Atari 2600 Pac-Man, in that it was the victim of expectations it could never hope to meet. In absolute terms, it did pretty well. It went double platinum in the US, peaked at number 4 on the Billboard 200, and was the 20th biggest album of 1980. Elsewhere, it hit number one in the UK and New Zealand, and went on to sell 4 million copies worldwide. That's pretty good. But compared to rumors, Warner Brothers regarded it as a failure. And because he was the chief architect of Tusk, Lindsay Buckingham got the lion's share of the blame from basically everybody, the label, fans, critics, even fellow members of Fleetwood Mac. In the years since Tusk's release, Buckingham has given numerous interviews where he defends the album and rationalizes its relative failure in a bunch of ways. And I know saying rationalizes sounds demeaning, but I don't mean it that way. He makes a lot of good points. First, as I mentioned before, even for the 1970s, a double platinum album is pretty good sales-wise. And while this is a young podcast, Tusk was more successful than every other album I've covered to this point combined. Secondly, and more importantly, Rumors was a lightning-in-a-bottle piece of pop culture. It's a really good album, yes, but it also had an incredibly compelling storyline behind it. The band's personal relationships all falling apart at the same time was well-documented, but in an age before social media, Rumors basically was the social media for the band. And, as I said earlier, they used it to get out how they really felt about one another, which made it a fascinating listen. 
Tusk could never have that soap opera quality to it. Even though reading the lyrics to a lot of the songs, it's pretty clear a lot of the bad blood from those breakups was still there while they were making Tusk. And of course, rumors sold so much that in Executive Bean Counterland, any follow-up was going to be a disappointment. Tusk was also a double album, which meant it came with a double album price, which further limited its sales. And lastly, the RKO radio station network played Tusk in its entirety on its stations, before the album was released, which meant that a bunch of people could and did just record it off the radio for free. Either way, though, the album's relative underperformance didn't slow down the Fleetwood Mac machine. While they never again reached the heights of rumors, considering only seven other artists have managed to match those heights, that's not a slight on them. And they kept right on cranking out hits through most of the 80s until Buckingham left the band in late 1987. Now this classic lineup reunited for a one-time performance at Bill Clinton's inauguration in 1993, since Clinton had used Don't Stop on his campaign trail. In 1995, the band, now with another different lineup, released an album called Time, which failed to even crack the Billboard 200, which is a pretty stunning decline from 20 years earlier. Perhaps the only thing more stunning was when the classic lineup reunited a bit more permanently in 1997, released a live album, The Dance, and had that live album go back to number one on the Billboard 200, returning them to superstar status. And the band had been going along with various lineups basically ever since then. As for Tusk's quality, it's an album that everyone should experience start to finish at least once. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a start to finish classic by any means. The band were adamant from the outset that they wanted it to be a double album, but it does have the same problem a lot of double albums have, where it gets a little flabby in places. I could do without most of the fourth side, minus Tusk and Beautiful Child. But it should be taken in as a complete artistic statement once especially with the larger context of the two albums that immediately preceded it. It is definitely a bold album, a paradoxical one even. It's one of those albums where the band kind of bites the hand of that fed it. Buckingham, in particular, is consciously not writing music like was found on Rumors and the self-titled album. And despite that, or maybe because of it, it's a fascinating listen on its own terms. Thanks for listening to the Divisive Albums podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MPDI.com. That's MPDI, D-O-T-C-O-M. I also have a website where you're probably listening to this at MPDI.com. You can also email the show at DivisiveAlbums at gmail.com. I'm also on Discord, and I will post the link to that in the show notes. And last but not least, the show is now on Patreon at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MPDI. If you don't know what Patreon is, think of the 18th century, classical musicians, artists, you know, those people. How they would make money is a really rich person would basically give them a bunch of money and say, hey, Beethoven, write me a symphony, and Beethoven would be like, okay. Patreon is basically that model, but crowdfunded. You can contribute a small amount to the show and get a shout-out in the show, get early access to episodes, or even suggest an episode or an album for me to do. Money from Patreon will go toward offsetting show expenses like buying albums, or paying for web hosting, maybe getting some better equipment for the show. And of course you'll win my undying appreciation. Thank you. Bye-bye.